to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hey there. Today, we'll be talking about meth or methamphetamine. Meth has been a grave problem on the West Coast for many years and is sweeping its way to the East. Nationally, of the 70,630 people who died from overdoses in 2019, over 30,000 of them involved stimulants. Stimulants are methamphetamine and cocaine. The rate of deaths of psychostimulants has increased five-fold from 2012 to 2018. And although that's a very high number, it's old news. The COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated drug use and drug deaths, including methamphetamine. The largest seizure of methamphetamines was in Paris, California, displaying 2,200 pounds of meth in October 2020. Methamphetamines cause euphoria, confidence, decreased inhibition, and increased energy. That's the classic agitated high. However, I have patients coming to the emergency department right after using meth, and they're laying sedated on the gurney feeling sick, and that's because their meth is laced with fentanyl. The mixture of meth and fentanyl does not always cause the classic pinpoint pupils for opioids or agitation for meth. People can have a mixture of symptoms. The classic high after meth does not last and is followed by a crash that can last for days. I know my patients are crashing on meth when they are too sleepy to sit up and talk to the doctor and just lay in a ball and want to sleep. Long-term consequences of meth include the typical meth mouth, that terrible uh, darkened blackened teeth, or a rash that looks like scabs across the body. Methamphetamine attacks the heart. And today, if I have a patient under the age of 50 who has heart failure, a heart that doesn't pump well, chances are their heart was damaged by meth. With that introduction, let's hear our listener question from Justin Roberts, a substance use disorder nurse. Hello, Dr. Lev and the team at High Truths. My name is Justin Roberts, and I work as a substance use disorder consult nurse in a busy urban hospital in Southern California. My colleagues and I work diligently to identify patients with opioid use disorder and facilitate the process of connecting them with medication-assisted treatment. However, when it comes to patients with methamphetamine use disorder, I often find myself frustrated at the relative lack of available options. What are some of the treatment options you recommend for these patients? And are there any new or emerging treatments for methamphetamine use disorder that we might see in the future? Thank you for your time. Thank you, Robert, for your question. It is indeed a frustrating problem. In the emergency department, we have a grant uh, with money to find people to treat opiate use disorder. And we're so excited when we have someone that meets the criteria and we start buprenorphine and connect them to treatment. And yet for every one patient we have with an opiate use disorder, we are sending out 10 with meth use disorder with very little resources or assistance. And to answer your question, I have a top national expert in the treatment for methamphetamine use disorder, Dr. Richard Rawson. 
Dr. Rawson is a professor emeritus at the UCLA Department of Psychiatry and a research professor at the Vermont Center for Behavioral and Health at the University of Vermont. He received his PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Vermont in 1974. Dr. Rawson conducted numerous clinical trials on pharmacological and psychosocial behavioral addiction treatments for the treatment of individuals with cocaine and methamphetamine disorders. He's a member of the Federal Methamphetamine Advisory Group to the Attorney General Janet Reno from 1996 to 2000 and has represented the United States at numerous international meetings on methamphetamine. He has led addiction research and training projects for the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and the U.S. State Department, exporting science-based knowledge to many parts of the world. Dr. Rawson has published three books, 40 book chapters, and already 250 peer-reviewed articles, and has conducted over 1,000 workshops, paper presentations, and training sessions. Dr. Richard Rawson's bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Rawson, welcome to High Truths. Hi, good to be with you. So we have a great question from Justin Roberts about you know, what are treatment options for people who have methamphetamine disorders? And you are really one of our nation, if not the world's experts in, in treating methamphetamine use disorder. How did that come about? How did you get to be this meth specialist? Oh, let's see. I, I started work at UCLA as an assistant professor in 1974 during the post-Vietnam uh, heroin uh, upsurge we saw in the U.S., and uh, did a lot of work with people with opioid use disorder for about 10 years. But beginning in about 1982-83 in Los Angeles, we started to see increase in cocaine use. At the time, the expertise said that cocaine was not an addicting drug, that cocaine was a drug that people liked to take, but that it didn't produce true addiction like opioids did. I set up a clinic and um, that seems funny now. Yeah, I know. I know the uh, we've learned a lot about addiction from our uh, last 40 years of working with people with stimulants. I set up a clinic uh, in Los Angeles and we specialized in treating people with cocaine use disorder. But after about three years, I got a request from San Bernardino County to come out there and set up another clinic to treat people with methamphetamine use disorder. Because in San Bernardino, like San Diego, methamphetamine has been a problem for a long time. Uh, it's, this isn't a new thing. And so we did that. And for about 20 years, I saw patient after patient after patient with cocaine and methamphetamine use disorder. And, um, over time, we started to put together some data. We started to get some grants from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and uh, study exactly what it is that worked, what doesn't work. And that developed into a 40-year career of treating people with uh, stimulant use disorder. Wow. And so how severe um, is the problem right now in our country? I mean, I, again, I'm in San Diego and I think every single homeless person's on meth, even though I know that's not exactly true, but it seems like it. And um, a great percentage of our ED volume um, is, uh, is there some way or another because of methamphetamine, either it's psychosis or acute intoxication or heart disease or infection. Um, somehow yeah, well, related. San, Diego, 
San Diego is arguably ground zero for the methamphetamine problem in the United States, and it has been for a long time. Um, it, it, you've had a supply of methamphetamine, both, both when we were doing domestic production back in the Breaking Bad days of the 1990s, and, um, and currently, because of the supply from the cartels, methamphetamine has always been um, swamped with methamphetamine. Nationally, methamphetamine and cocaine now are second only to fentanyl in causing overdose deaths. Uh, I just saw data that during 2020, we're likely going to hit 90,000 uh, deaths from overdose, drug overdose. And of those, about 40% are uh, involved stimulants, uh, cocaine or methamphetamine, uh, with methamphetamine increasing at a much greater rate than cocaine now. So it's a big part of the overdose death uh, situation. Wow. Um, and when I give presentations on methamphetamines, I, I have a slide that shows the dopamine surge from, uh, you know, a regular person, me and you talking to each other um, and compared to someone on uh, marijuana or heroin and meth mm. always has the biggest surge um, of any drug in, in dopamine. And I imagine that that means it's way more addicting um, uh, and harder to, to, to treat than even heroin or marijuana or other drugs of abuse. Well, it does, because of that big surge of dopamine, it does produce a more powerful condition response um, and produces significantly more damage to the brain because of that surge of dopamine. So yeah, that's a significant graph that you're, you're seeing. That, that big wallop of dopamine that occurs at the brain um, is responsible for a lot of the the uh, problems we see with people who use methamphetamine. And um, it, it it is a very frustrating problem. And Justin Roberts uh, works in the front lines, sees these patients, and is very frustrated that there are lack of treatment options. Is there treatment? Um, for methamphetamine use disorder? Well, of course, I'm sure Justin sees uh, people in the and you see people in the emergency department and the first order of business with them is to make sure they don't die and to, and to address their uh, overdose, their intoxication, their psychosis, and all of those things. And we have a variety of protocols to address those emergency conditions. Um, none of which has actually been studied that much, but they've been kind of developed through trial and error and trial and um, uh, people's experience. Once you're not no longer dealing with the, with the uh, emergency conditions and you're dealing with how do you help people stop using stimulants? How do you help them discontinue methamphetamine? We do have some data on treatment. Um, I should say though, before we get to that, one of the one of the things that is, uh, if if you if you're working with a group of professionals and most of them have spent their addiction careers working with people with opioid use disorder, one of the things they don't that is different and that takes some getting used to in working with people with methamphetamine is that many, if not 
a majority of individuals with methamphetamine use disorder are not interested in treatment. They uh, don't see themselves as having a problem. They often tend to view people with opioid use disorder as being addicted. They have to use it all the time. They can't not use it because they get sick. However, if I'm a, a meth, if I'm an individual who uses methamphetamine, I can stop and start kind of in episodes. So I tend to think I'm not addicted. And so I definitely to- see that in my patients. So I'll, I'll have someone who had open heart surgery and a new heart valve and really intricate life saving procedures because of methamphetamine. So they've been told and have experienced hospitalizations that this is bad for them. And, and yet they're still using and they'll, they'll just say, well, I, you know, I, I, I cut back. Why, why is there, why is there such a difference with people who use meth that don't perceive that it's a problem and yet people who use opioids who understand that it's a problem? Because they have in their mind that addiction means you have to use every day like somebody addicted to nicotine or somebody addicted to heroin or opioids, addiction in their mind equals, I have to use, I can't stop, I'm going to go into withdrawal, so I'll, I'll do anything to keep using. Whereas for them and their stimulant use, they can actually stop for periods of time. They can go for a few days, a few weeks, and then they go back to using. So to them, that means... I'm not addicted because I, I can stop. I think I understand what you're saying. The When you're addicted to opioids, the withdrawal effects, it's the withdrawal that's different. The withdrawal from opiates is, um, you know, feeling horrible and nausea and, and really bad negative effects. The withdrawal from meth is you're crashing. You're sleeping and not waking up for three days and then you wake up and you could use again. The withdrawal from stimulants is very different than the withdrawal right. from opiates. And maybe that's why there's a perception um, right. of addiction that's different. Hmm. Right. And so it, to get back to Justin's question, when you, when you are working with a patient like that and they don't see themselves as having a problem and you um, get them through their intoxication or get them through their emergency and you want to uh, get them engaged in some kind of ongoing recovery program, um, you say, well, you can go down the street to um, XYZ rehab and they will uh, admit you. I don't see that I, I don't need that. I don't, I don't need to go there. And so getting, making that connection into treatment is very difficult. And well, what about patients who do want? Okay. If they do, they're, the treatment data that we have uh, from 40 years or so of um, research on treatment for people with stimulant use disorder has been very consistent and uh, very singular in that there's one method that produces a great reduction in methamphetamine and cocaine use and um, helps people stop using and will sustain their, their abstinence. And that's a technique we call contingency management. And it's a technique that involves uh, providing people with rewards, uh, incentives, uh, some tangible um, stuff, uh, gift cards, prizes, whatever, to help them discontinue their method, give, 
give drug-free urine samples, for example. So the, the, the often protocol is for people to be in treatment. And if they come in and give a, a, a drug sample, it's tested right away. If it doesn't have um, any stimulants in it, in the, in the urine sample, they can earn a $10 gift card. And if they do that three times in a row, they can earn a $20 gift card. And uh, that can go on for periods of weeks or months of providing those incentives for that kind of uh, positive uh, discontinuation of methamphetamine. And I, I've seen some uh, creative incentives like getting your nails done or, you know, stick with a program for a year and we'll get your, fix, your teeth fixed or. Right. Uh, I mean, th there's two things. One is the use of incentives to reinforce positive behavior. There's all sorts of varied uh, uh, models of that. You, you, and a lot of programs already do that. They provide people with rewards and acknowledgements for achieving things, and you can get the best parking space in the clinic, and you, you know, you'll get a candy bar if you attend the group on time. All of that stuff is great. Those are incentives. That's not contingency management. Contingency management is a specific protocol that is uh, has very clear identified target behaviors. In a, many places, it's giving stimulant-free drug urine samples, uh, urine samples. Mm -hmm. places. It's attending treatment re regularly, showing up for treatment uh, regularly. In some other places, it's doing treatment homework assignments. And if you do that and you accomplish the behavior, you immediately get the reward. Now, the rewards are substantial in the research studies in which uh, contingency management has been shown to be effective. The, re the, the rewards are not candy bars. They're, they, they can be in one of the studies I ran. People could earn up to $1,000 over the course of 16 weeks if they stopped and did everything they were asked to do. That's a big uh, Big deal. Generally, don't earn that. They usually earn about half of whatever the maximum is, but um, still, it's five or six hundred dollars they were earning over sixteen weeks. So, contingency management is a really—you have to have the right protocol. You need to know exactly how to how to deliver it. You have to have escalation of the values for people showing consecutive drug-free urine. So, there's—it's not quite the same as. A lot of the little, you know, the much more modest incentive programs that are used, those are good. I don't want to discourage people from having as much positivity in their treatment program as possible. But contingency management is a whole different thing. And, and if somebody wants to do it, they need to read up the literature and there's like manuals you can get to as to how to do it. But the data from all the research, and there have literally been hundreds of studies using contingency management for people with stimulant use disorder, the studies are uh, overwhelmingly consistent that this works for people with stimulant use disorder. And the studies have shown significant, right? Up to, what what does the data show for uh, the studies, I well, think, I mean, from the Veterans Administration? Well, because NIDA studies generally have a fairly short um, Time period. I mean, there have been studies six week or six months of um, using contingency management. We did a, we did a couple of studies with people with stimulant use disorder, 
we had our intervention went on for 16 weeks, but we followed people for a year and we collected urine samples at uh, three months, six months and 12 months after they entered. And the reduction in their stimulant use persisted well beyond when we were giving them the rewards. What the patient nice. tells us is when they're, when they're getting the rewards, they, they learn how to stop. And while they're stopped, they start doing some new things and they start to recognize, gee, I think maybe I wanna continue doing this. And the benefits far persist beyond the period of time of giving them the rewards. Nice. And I think the some of the studies showed success in uh, over 90% of patients, a huge. Yeah, no, the, I mean, and we've had in the last two or three years, we've had uh, uh, big research groups around the world actually examining the literature on uh, treatment for stimulant use disorder. And virtually all of them say the same thing, that contingency management by far is the most effective technique for people treating people with stimulant use disorder. Okay. So it is, I mean, there, there, there's really good agreement among the experts that, that it's kind of like 20 years ago when after the studies were being done with buprenorphine where all the researchers said, this, is, this, this works, this is something we've got to get out into the field, but we hadn't yet moved it into the, into the real world. And people like you and others have done that with buprenorphine over the last 20 years. We're at the point now with contingency management where we have all the researchers agreeing, it's now a matter of how do we get this used in the real world as a treatment? So this is the gold standard for treatment of methamphetamine use disorder. And, uh, and so why aren't we doing it? What, what are the barriers? How come I don't, how come I can't refer patients from the emergency department who want treatment um, to, to such a program? Okay, well, there's, there's a little bit of a history to it. Um, I did a talk today for Brown University and in the, um, in the question and answer period, a young lady said, um, well, you know, I'm in recovery myself. And um, when you talk, when I hear you talk about giving people things and money and gift cards to stop using, what happened to internal motivation? What happened to making the patient uh, uh, find the motivation to stop on their own? That's one of the barriers that there's a sense that there's something wrong with the idea of using incentives to um, to promote this new uh, new behavior, and so that's taken a while. And I've done a lot of talks, and many people have been talking all around the country over the last um, ten or fifteen years about this. And I think we're at a point now where, because of the deaths that are associating with methamphetamine, people are a little less concerned as to whether this is sort of the best way of doing it. They just know it works. So we're actually, a lot of that resistance is going away. The second issue has always been, where do you get the money? I mean, if you're talking about a, an intervention that costs $500 a patient for 12 weeks or 16 weeks, who, which treatment program, you know, in the United States has a vault of cash they can use to come up with these $500 incentive programs for every single patient. That's been a little bit mitigated by the SOR grants that the federal government has uh, released over the last several years where 
states have money to um, deliver evidence-based treatment. A lot of it's gone to buprenorphine, but it, it's certainly allowable for people to use that money to build incentive programs. So those two obstacles have been pretty much uh, reduced. The big one is the issue of Medicaid regulations because many of the people seeking treatment for methamphetamine use disorder are using Medicaid for their insurance. Medicaid won't allow the use of more than $75 per patient per year for any kind of incentive program. Um, and so they have been, they are the big obstacle to using contingency management. Um, and is that because of um, anti-kickback laws? Yeah, so that's exactly what it is. They, we were doing it in California. When I was at UCLA, we were, um, we had actually gotten a bunch of programs in California to start doing contingency management and they were using it and it was working very well they would get a Medicaid audit and all of a sudden they would be told, you can't do this. Giving people incentives in our world, in the world of the Medicaid auditor, that's a, that's a kickback. And um, so you can't do that. And so that pretty much shut it down. That, that shut down because people obviously don't want to get in trouble with Medicaid. So they didn't, they didn't want to get involved. We have been arguing back and forth for since the mid the, 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 like 2005, 2008, uh, through the, there, since that time with the Medicaid office, with the office of the inspector general about how can we do this? Because this technique is by far the most effective. We don't have any other techniques that work as well as this. How do we work this out so that we can use this? And we're still working on it. We're making progress, but as of right this minute, that anti-kickback uh, regulation is still in place. And where where is this an act of Congress? Is this a regulation? Is this an executive order by the president? What how would what would be some mechanism to change that? Well, if if in the Department of Health and Human Services you have the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, who, who is a, a presidential appointee, um, and that person oversees, and that's Xavier Becerra now, I think, from California. Um, mm -hmm. And um, but within the Department of Health and Human Services is the Office of the Inspector General, which is a semi-independent office that is that's not uh, uh, re reactive to political pressure, and they are there to make sure that the uh, Department of Health and Human Services falls all various regulations they're supposed to follow. And so they're sort of an internal policeman in the, in the department. They are the ones with the regulations that have restricted um, the use of, of incentives. And because they view this in the bigger world of Medicaid, giving people incentives has often been part of big fraudulent um, Medicaid uh, episodes. For example, in Los Angeles County back in 2000, early 2000s, there was a $100 million fraud uh, a scheme in LA County in drug treatment where people were being paid $100 to come into the clinic, bring in your Medicaid, Medi-Cal card. The card would come in, they would run off millions of dollars worth of bogus billings on the card. And then 
Next month, we'll pay you another $100 to come in and bring your card in again. So this idea of giving people incentives who are on Medicaid to come in and get services is in the world of the inspector general, a framework for fraud. And so they just instinctively didn't like this whole idea. Uh, we've explained to them, we've sent them lots of documents. Dr. Wesley Clark is now involved in, in helping lead an effort to change this. Um, the Office of the Inspector General released a report in December of last year saying, okay, we're not opposed to this. We're not saying you can't do it, but if you do wanna do it, you have to do it with these rules. And so they listed in this document, it's called the final rule. It was published in the congressional record. It's 200 pages long, <laughs> believe it or not. And uh, it, it goes into how you can use contingency management as it's used in the research studies, using higher amounts, but what you have to do in order to do it without getting in trouble with uh, Medicaid. And, and having reviewed that final rule, is it doable? Is it reasonable? Opinion. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and, and really, this is, this is all lawyer stuff at this point. The Medicaid lawyers in many states, including California, view the whole situation as being too uncertain. Because a lot of these things the OIG is saying, they haven't really defined. And so we're not exactly sure what they're what they mean when they say you have to have a system that tracks how the incentives are used and accounted for and blah blah blah. So it can be audited by Medicaid. And so there's still a lot of hesitancy about whether to move forward uh, with this. And so Dr. Dr. Clark and a number of us are. Um, working with some Congress people to, um, and with the Office of National Drug Control Policy to see how we can get a statement, a policy, a clear guideline for how treatment programs, states and treatment programs can use contingency management without worrying that they're gonna get audited and be told they're committing Medicaid fraud. So we're, it's still in development. And so it's, I think, to be honest, my position is, and I'm telling groups this around the country, I think if you did a pilot project, if you could get some money from the state to do contingency management for your people with stimulant use disorder, you could get the state to approve the money. I think if you had a compelling population, for example, pregnant women, uh, American Indian Alaskan natives where the uh, meth problem is three times killing three times as many people as in any of the other populations. I think if you did a well-designed protocol and you track the money very carefully to make sure you weren't handing out gift cards to the mailman and the janitor, um, I think you could um, you could do a project right now that would will pass muster. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You get lawyers involved and that's um, that's going to stop or slow down any project. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what happens every time is that people get all enthusiastic. They go to their state agency. The state uh, the, the, the director says, 
this looks really good. This this is looks very effective. And then it goes to the lawyers and they go, no, you can't do this. And so Yeah, because they, they, they work on fear and uh, no, and that's the job of a lawyer. That's their job. They're doing their job. You need somebody right. like you or me that's saying that's willing to <laughs> challenge that and saying, I'm sorry, we have people dying and this is important and we're willing to take the risk. And, and we know that the intention of this project is to save lives and we're willing to take that risk. Yeah. And I think if, I mean, given these, these things that the OIG says they want, first off, you can't advertise that you're doing contingency management. They don't want people putting up billboards saying, come to our treatment and earn $500 to stop using cocaine or methamphetamine. They don't mm-hmm. want advertising uh, that way. Um, and they also say you have to have a written protocol. You have to have a, an oversight, uh, internal oversight program to make sure the protocol is being followed and you have to have an accounting system to show how the money was used that goes into incentives and you can track that it was used appropriately. I think that's all very doable. Yeah, and it's I very, think it's it, reasonable. If, yeah, it is reasonable. And, and by the way, I do think the OIG has reason to be cautious about this. I mean, I think it could be abused, misused. If it's, if it's not done well, even in some of the studies I ran where we had um, gift cards and we were giving them out according to the protocol. Well, who has access to the box of gift cards? Is it everybody in the clinic? Is it set on the shelf so that people can just grab them? I mean, you have to, this is, these are big resources. You have to, it's almost like you have to manage them like they're medications, like they're, you know, you have to have an accounting for them and a sign out and people have to initial it and all of that is it needs to be set up and it's it's not you know it's not a minor issue it's that because that's what the OIG is going to look at but I think if it's done properly and certainly if you're doing it with a patient population that's you know severe that's dying I mean it's severely ill from these the this uh, drug use I think you can make the argument that that this you're doing this in a responsible way. And, um, and then it's wonderful that you went to uh, my old office at uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy with the White House. I know you told me that you met with them and uh, how promising, um, you know, do changes um, make or an announcements that's, you know, encourage, at least encourage people. Right now there's disincentive to try to, to do this. Well, in President Biden's new statement on uh, priorities for drug treatment that came out a week or so ago, 10 days ago, um, it's listed in there as one of the the key changes that need to be made, that obstacles to the use of contingency management need to be uh, removed so that this effective technique can be used. Um, we, As you say, we've talked to people in ONDCP, there's not a, there's not a director but the acting director and the um, some of the high-level staffers are are very uh, positive about this and are very much in support. As is SAMHSA and certainly NIDA, um, Nora Volkov and and the folks at NIDA are incredibly supportive of this. In many ways, a lot of us see contingency management is to stimulants what buprenorphine was is to opioid use disorder. That is absolutely. That's beautiful. Overwhelming. And we just have to figure out how to get it used. And what about 
medications. Um, are there medications? I mean, there's medicines to treat um, all sorts of addiction, nicotine addiction and opioid addiction and alcohol addiction. Are there medications to treat methamphetamine addiction? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a long story. My, the first, one of my first papers that I published on this topic area was in 1981. I published a study in the, in the Annals of Internal Medicine that said that uh, dizipramine was not useful in treating um, methamphetamine use disorder. And tell, tell our audience what dizipramine is. Dizipramine is, a, is an antidepressant. It was one of the earlier generation before the SSRIs. It was a tricyclic antidepressant. It was you know, a, a fairly effective antidepressant. And we thought when we first started seeing these people with stimulant use disorder and when they would stop their stimulants, they would have symptoms of depression. They would feel blue. They would be, they'd have low energy. They felt hopeless. And we thought, oh, that looks like depression. Let's try treating it with an antidepressant. Well, we did. We, had, we ran a small study and we found no effect, um, which kicked off a, um, a career for me of about the next 30 years in which I was involved uh, with uh, the medication development effort for stimulant use disorder. And I've probably been involved in 35 different trials. I haven't been for about 10 years, but I... Um, I, uh, all of them negative trials, by the way. Uh, we, we, uh, I think I probably have the track record of being involved with most trials for a, treating a disorder where we never found one that worked. Um, but um, it, it's, it's been a very serious effort and it's been a very intensive effort. We actually had a, a site in San Diego for our uh, medication network uh, that we were using back in the early 2000s. Um, We've, we've tested all kinds of medicines, many, many antidepressants, some anti-anxiety agents, some anti-seizure medicines, uh, some other medicines that were for other kinds of medical disorders. And there's really been a huge effort to find something. Mirtazapine, which is an antidepressant, um, it's a SSRI. It's actually an SSRI, MAO inhibitor, I guess. Um, but it's used for the treatment of depression. It's very effective, uh, often under the brand name of Remeron. Um, the group in uh, San Francisco, Grant Koufax and his colleagues, uh, have now run two trials with mirtazapine and found effective, um, effective uh, compared to placebo, they've gotten effective uh, uh, outcomes. So that's one leading candidate. Now they've run it only with their with their clinic population, and it's an MSM HIV clinic. It's it's uh, it's the big HIV clinic in San Francisco, and they've done it with their methamphetamine user population. And MSM their- means men who have sex with men right. HIV so clinic. Okay. That's a that's a population that has had historically has had uh, very high rates of methamphetamine use, and so they've done their mirtazapine. Uh, trials, both of them in that population, and both of those po- studies have been uh, uh, positive. So how how successful? I don't know if you know off the top of your like what percentage of patients quit. I think they found. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know it right off the top of my head, but it was far superior to placebo, and they had people taking it over twelve weeks in both trials. 
And this was a big difference. There was a, it was a substantial difference. I think it was something like 50% responder. Oh, nice. In mirtazapine compared to about 20 to 25% responders in the placebo group. So, and, and when you sort of separate out the placebo condition, yeah, you're probably looking at maybe one person in three or one person in four got benefits. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily stopped using for the rest of their lives, but they were able to substantially reduce their methamphetamine use. So that's one medicine. I think that would clearly have to be one of the promising candidates. Um, another candidate that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January is a combination medication. It's the use of uh, long-acting naltrexamum, narcotic antagonist, uh, people know it as Vivitrol, uh, compared, uh, combined with bupropion, or which is an um, antidepressant known as Wellbutrin. The combination of those medications was, was tested for people with methamphetamine use disorder in a large multi-site trial with, um, I think, six sites, four or six sites. And um, they, their, the results of their study showed a statistically significant reduction in methamphetamine use among people who got the medicine compared to people who got placebo. And they, their statistics showed the medicine worked better than placebo. No question, clear and there. I'm sure their statistics were absolutely accurate and they did have a finding. However, the magnitude of the effect was relatively small. It looked like about one person in eight or one person in 10 seemed to get a positive response uh, compared to placebo. Um, so there, I, think, I think our current best perception of that study is, okay, maybe there's something there that we need to continue to research and to tweak and to, maybe we change the combination or we change something about how it's done, the dose. But there's certainly a lot more work that needs to be done before I think that's ready for widespread application. It's a, it's a signal as opposed to a confirmatory trial. Yeah, I think that uh, I think they showed that the combination of the two drugs, naltrexone and bupropion, was 14% better than placebo. And I thought that was pretty terrible odds, actually, uh, especially well, when I, we I, know the gold standard is contingency management, and that's affected up to 90% um, compared to drugs that, frankly, cost more money than the contingency management. Um, yes. That give you like 90% for contingency management versus drugs that cost more than contingency management for 14%. That, to me, it doesn't add up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that um, I think in the context of a literally a 40-year program to find medicines that are going to be useful for stimulant use disorder, having one that finally showed some effect compared to placebo was the reason for all the cheering. It wasn't that the results were so wonderful. It's not like the vaccine for the uh, for COVID. I mean, it wasn't like, oh my God, this is a game changer. It's not a game changer. Mm -hmm. 
Is it a signal that maybe we're heading towards medications that might be useful? Hopefully it is that, but, but that's all it is right now. And I think when uh, I hear some of my uh, physician, mostly psychiatrist colleagues saying, well, we got to use something. We have to use something. And, and to be honest, uh, at this point, because contingency management isn't available in most places, I understand people's sense of we got to do something. And so I think. So if I was going to do something and I had to do a drug because I don't have contingency management, what about mirtazapine? Isn't that better? Yeah, I you know when I talk to my colleagues who have used it and it is being used off label for that purpose, and I think that um, you know people have found some benefits from it. I was talking to somebody uh, the other day in Los Angeles, and she said, "Well, you know, one of the side effects is people gain weight on it, and they really don't like the ga- the weight gain." And I mean, there's always something when 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 new medicines um, come out that that yes, we got a. But but wait a second. If you stop using meth, you're going to gain weight because you've been on meth and you're not using it anymore. So compared to placebo, if you stopped using meth, you're going to gain weight. Uh, Apparently, though, even when it's used as a treatment for depression, Mm -hmm. one of the side effects of mirtazapine is weight gain. So when you add that to the weight gain that people have when they stop their meth use, that's just an anecdotal report. I don't know. I mean, I do know from talking with our colleague there in San Diego, Joe Sepulveda, uh, Dr. Sepulveda has um, told me he's trying these various medicines. He really feels the need to have something that works better than his current options. But he has had some limited you know, success with, with both of these uh, current promising medications. I mean, it's Interesting. people are, I, I have to say, in talking to the doctor, particularly the doctors who are prescribed buprenorphine and they've seen their patients with opioid use disorder get on buprenorphine and do just beautifully and then they discover methamphetamine and then everything falls apart and it's back where they started from in many ways they're back injecting they're back involved in crime they're back they drop off from buprenorphine i mean methamphetamine in that population really has damaged our treatment uh, effort and I understand the the desires of the of the teams, the treatment teams, to want to have something, and um, when contingency management hasn't been available. You know, we had an episode on high truths. I think episode six. Robert um, came into the hospital, and his main drug of choice was methamphetamine, but he was also using. Uh, opiate. So he had both dual methamphetamine use disorder and opiate use disorder. And while he was in the hospital, he was started on Suboxone. And I asked him, well, how did that help your craving for meth? And he said, well, when that, that somehow in his mind and in his personal chemistry, that that worked for him, that not having craving for opioids meant that he didn't have the cravings for meth. And if we understand what we first talked about, which is the the negative aspects of opiate with withdrawal? If you can you manage that, then then it helped him. With it's amazing that I didn't understand it until he explained that Suboxone actually helped with his methamphetamine use, even uh, though it was used really for his opiate use disorder. Yeah, no that 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 is a that's a a report that I've heard a lot, and it's in the literature. 
I did an evaluation of treatment back here where I am now in Vermont and um, 100 patients on the buprenorphine. Many of them were using a variety of other drugs and their overall drug use went down, not just their opioid use. For a lot of them, it was because their opioid use was such a driver of their overall lifestyle and um, preoccupation with drug use. When they were able to stop their opioid use, they were freed up to be able to do lots of other things. The problem often occurs after people have been on buprenorphine for a while and they're doing well and their life is stabilized and they're kind of cruising along and they bump into an old friend who has some methamphetamine and it's a Friday night and it's not their use isn't initially driven by a compulsive need to use. It's just, oh, you know. Have a good time. Smoke a joint, I'll, I'll take a hit of meth. And then it goes off and it all unravels. And so... And then once they develop sort of an independent stimulant use disorder, that's a different situation. The, the, the medication doesn't, the buprenorphine doesn't help. I mean, adjusting the buprenorphine up or down doesn't seem make any difference. And certainly people should not be punished for their stimulant. We've, we've seen in some parts of the United States, if people use stimulants while they're on buprenorphine, they'll be kicked out of treatment because they're using illicit drugs while on buprenorphine. And as I, I would suspect you would endorse, don't do that. Don't kick them off buprenorphine. Um, it's no, um, I mean, that'd be like, that'd be like killing them. <laughs> right. It's uh, the right. They don't get better. They get dead I yeah. mean, with yeah. fentanyl on the street. So right. it, um, I do think one of the big uh, uh, developments I think that's going to be helpful, assuming we can get this contingency management glitch worked out with uh, the inspector general, is there are apps that are now developed that where you can deliver contingency management uh, over people's uh, personal phone, over their iPhones or whatever. And, uh, and is that available now? I'd love yes, to promote that. There's a couple of companies. One is called Dynamic Care. That's out of uh, uh, Massachusetts. David Gastrand is the um, who is a longtime ASAM doctor is um, is one of the the direct owners of that. There's another one called uh, Reset. What is it called? Reset. R E S E T. Okay. That's another app based thing, and it has contingency management as part of it. There's a third one called We Connect that I don't know as much about, but it also they advertise that as part of their app-based substance use treatment, um, they have contingency management that's part of it. Now, Dynamic Care, I know the other two, I think, give you rewards. They deliver it on an electronic gift card in your phone. If you complete assignments or if you attend online sessions or something, Care actually rewards negative saliva tests for stimulants. So you video yourself, you take a saliva test, they have these little, you know, uh, tests you can get uh, that they'll send you. You put it in, you uh, get the test, you video the result. It, the, uh, the center can see the result, and if it's negative, they add money to your. Uh, that is so cute. <laughs> I love that. Right. Well, I think, to my, in my opinion, 
For contingency management to ever be effectively used with patients on buprenorphine who are using stimulants, that's going to be a necessary uh, element because they don't, I, I've talked to patients on buprenorphine who are using, they don't want to come into the clinic twice a week to, to get urine tested and get their contingency management. Yeah. Part of what well, they like about we do that with people with alcohol use disorder. You give videotape your negative breast saliza before you get behind a wheel or, or right. and show and videotape, um, you know, that you're not using alcohol um, with the breast well, I think I think this camera. technology has great, great potential. Wow. Treatment out of our offices, out into the world where the patients are. Wow. I love that. I'm, okay, so I definitely want to share this resource with our listeners, the three different applications, Dynamic Care, Reset, and WeConnect. Right. And the one that has a negative saliva test, is that just Dynamic Care? That's my understanding. I don't think the other two have that same capability. Okay. Uh, I will have to check that out. That I really like that. Um, the other thing, some doctors have come to me and said, you know, again, desperate, desperate to do something for methamphetamine because it's such a such a devastating problem. Um, they say, you know what, we give methadone to people who have opiate use disorder. That's a direct agonist. Why don't we give Ritalin and Adderall to people who have methamphetamine disorders in the same way? Um, what's what's your answer to that question? I'll compare it to my answer, see if I'm correct or not. Well, I mean, uh, I was in, I've been involved in some trials where we tried that. It, the problem is it doesn't seem to work. Um, and um, stimulants, uh, I mean, with, with opioids, when you have a short-acting opioid, a drug like heroin or fentanyl, and you can substitute a longer-acting opioid like methadone or buprenorphine and maintain a blood level, that provides a therapeutic effect that allows the person not to crave opioids. When you give us a person addicted to stimulants, methamphetamine or cocaine, you give them a drug like amphetamine or uh, one of the various forms of amphetamine, it doesn't seem to produce the same reduction in craving and it doesn't, they don't seem to stabilize. They seem to continue to increase, want to increase their dose. And so it, it doesn't produce the same therapeutic benefit. I mean, I don't think anybody is morally opposed to the idea of substitution treatment for stimulants. It just doesn't work. And so it's, um, I, I'm sure there are, there are some people, and I've heard plenty of anecdotal evidence that there are people who, whose stimulant use really was driven by them medicating their own ADHD. And when they're given proper medicine, they're able to stop their stimulant use. But I think that's a relatively small proportion. Um, it's, this is not, I, I think the use of long acting stimulants like Ritalin and um, Vyvanse and Adderall and other things, um, they're gonna continue to be tested for this use, but so far the data are not very positive. The explanation I gave Again, I'm not a researcher with trials and experience like you did, but uh, I just did the math. And I said, you know, if you do a hit of meth, it's like a hundred, you know, is a thousand milligrams of stimulant. If you do Adderall, the dose is five, you know, 
or up to 60 milligrams. And if, so you won't even get, you'd have to prescribe it at a dose that's, that's a crazy toxic uh, poisonous amount that's not ethical to, to give, to even equal um, mm-hmm. what that is. And it's interesting that you say about the anecdotal evidence that there's some people who are self-treating ADHD and, and they decrease their use by using uh, methamphetamines or by using uh, prescribed um, uh, amphetamine salts. I, I think that I see the opposite a lot more where people have been self-diagnosing themselves with ADHD and, and get themselves into trouble by starting with meds and, and, and going into methamphetamine. Is it? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. What I'm talking about is I'm sure there is a subset of adults out there who have this brain condition of ADHD and they don't feel good. They can't concentrate. They have you know, low energy and all this stuff with ADHD. And they actually have the brain disease. They do take stimulants and they feel better. And so if they are given under a doctor's uh, uh, supervision, these medications, they can be helpful to them. But what you're describing is way more common. Right. Is the person going, and here in Vermont, uh, I've done a lot of talks with the primary care docs here who say, we get all these people who come in around November saying they have ADHD, they don't feel good, they feel kind of gray. Well, it's November here, it never gets the sun never comes out. The days are really short, it's cold and nasty. And it's um, gee, is that ADHD or is that I'm just feeling kind of blah, and so I'd like some stimulants to feel better. And and the docs here are saying these folks don't have ADHD, they they just are drug seeking. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, what you're describing is much more common. I mean, I do think the other thing does occur. Right. It's a really skilled psychiatrist or psychologist to properly diagnose the ADHD, get a history, get all of that. And that's not the same as somebody coming in saying, I have ADHD and I need Adderall. I mean, which is much more common and I think is a problem. And and there's actually a researcher at at Harvard right now looking at, are we starting to see an increase in the use of prescription stimulants um, for that bogus purpose? We know, we absolutely know from the PDMP system, the prescription drug monitoring system, that um, we see this trend over time that the number of opioids have prescriptions overall have gone down dramatically to the point where I tell people we don't have a prescription opioid uh, epidemic anymore. We've seen benzodiazepines go down. And at the same time, we've seen the stimulant prescribed stimulants going up. Um, So, so more doctors are making that diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's something that needs to be um, discussed. And I think uh, just like in the early 2000s or late 1990s, had we started having those conversations about prescription opioids and the fact that all these people don't have pain, uh, I think the same conversation about if you're gonna give somebody a medicine for ADHD, you really need to do a careful diagnosis to make sure it's that it someone's saying I've got ADHD or when I was a kid, I had trouble concentrating in school. So I think I had ADHD. That's not a diagnosis for ADHD. Yeah. 
I want to touch briefly because we've talked all this time about methamphetamine and methamphetamine and cocaine are both stimulants and we talk about them as if they're the same, but there are different treatments for cocaine use disorder than the, just the proven contingency management for methamphetamine use disorder. Well, a lot of the, when I talk about contingency management being effective for stimulant use disorder, I'm talking about both. And okay. the data, there's no uh, evidence with the behavioral treatments, contingency management being the, the primary one, there's no difference in the, in the impact of contingency management for cocaine versus methamphetamine. Um, there's a whole different set of medicines that are being looked at for cocaine because as you say, the neurobiology is, is different. And so there may be medications that may work for cocaine that don't work for methamphetamine, but really in, with cocaine, we're in the same situation we are with methamphetamine, where there so is no approved There's medicine. no FDA approved medication for cocaine either? Right, that's correct. And, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because there in California, certainly in San Diego, the big issue is methamphetamine. That's not the same all over the country. And if you look at the overdose deaths with stimulants, cocaine is right there with methamphetamine in, in being uh, involved with, with deaths. However, the cocaine use tends to be more urban, tends to be more East Coast, tends to be more in the African-American, the Black community. And I think in a lot of ways, we're in some good parts of the literature now overlooking the cocaine problem. And as we go to work with methamphetamine, which is today's boogeyman drug. I think that the um, we shouldn't overlook the fact that there are many people dying of cocaine overdose, cocaine and fentanyl. And um, all of this work on contingency management should also be uh, used in those communities. And we should get that evidence-based treatment into the treatment of cocaine use as well. Yes. And um, fentanyl, uh, and this is not the most recent data, but um, affects 50% of all the cocaine deaths while it was 25% of the methamphetamine deaths. Yeah. But I think that that's yep. probably climbing. Yeah, it both, it's climbing for both. You're right. And, uh, and so tell us about what's your, what's your latest research project? You always have your, you know, well, you're always up to something. The last research project that, that I finished, I'm still writing up, is on the value of physical exercise for methamphetamine use disorder. I published about eight out of this last research trial on um, physical exercise. And I think that as we move forward and start to look at more than just talk therapy and medicines and look for a, a whole range of, of ways to help people with addiction, I think exercise is gonna play a huge role. Our data on physical exercise for people with methamphetamine use disorder show we did PET scans with our patients pre-post our study. Those who were involved in the exercise condition showed more rapid recovery of their dopamine system, less depression and anxiety, um, less craving, uh, less relapse to methamphetamine. Uh, I think exercise has tremendous value. The, the trick that, is, that is so wonderful. I, I, we have a guy from our community who the way he was homeless using intravenous heroin and the way he stopped 
was not buprenorphine or a treatment program. He walked across the entire United States. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, and then by the time he got across the other end, um, he was drug free. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and it's, this isn't just sort of exercise is a nice thing and it's good for your health and it's a wonderful thing that everybody should do. This is specifically methamphetamine recovery specific that we right. This is your medicine. You, this is your exactly. medicine. Go walk for with, two miles. Every with day. the results that we got from our trial, if you got a result like that with a medicine, it would be able to be presented to the FDA for, for approval because we got really powerful results. And, um, and it just is one of those things that we need more trials now to replicate it, to get more you know, an evidence but, based on But I that. love the concept. Not every problem needs a drug. Not every, I mean, if you think about it, drugs got you into the problem. How right. we, now we want to get more drugs to get you out of the problem. I love ideas and solutions that are, don't necessarily use pharmaceutical. Yes, me too. And I, and you know, I think that the, the uh, we're trying, we're working with some places around the country right now to implement exercise. The good news is exercise works. The bad news or the less good news is how do you get people to do it? And I mean, that's not a uh, specific to people with methamphetamine use disorder. That's for if, if people listening or, you know, their own exercise program. I mean, but, but that's true. That's your own you know, incentives or contingency measurements, like how do I lose weight? How yep. do I do anything? You need to, you need to, you know, psych yourself, um, you know, and uh, to do anything like that. Right. I do think though, if treatment programs actually incorporated exercise, not as kind of a time filler extra thing, but as a medicine, the way as they job. Yeah. And, and do things to promote its use have exercise equipment available, give people passes to the gym, uh, have walking groups that people can participate in as part of their treatment or basketball, you know, all of that stuff that we sort of think is being, well, that's not really treatment. That's kind of like extra stuff. But to think of it more as actual treatment, I think it could really, um, and, and see people really uh, increase its use, I think it would have really great benefits to people in recovery. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, what is your final advice to, to Justin Roberts, uh, our substance use disorder nurse who, who wanted to know what are some answers for methamphetamine? Well, I think if, if Justin works with um, uh, a treatment organization or some clinics or can do it in the, in the clinic that you should talk to the um, uh, people who are in charge about developing a contingency management program and, and developing a pilot project. Some hospitals will fund pilot projects for particular uh, uh, disorders that don't have you know, established treatments and actually try to implement something like that. Because as much as I like to say, well, or, or he could do some cognitive behavioral therapy or he could do some... Nothing works nearly as well as contingency management. So working with the, some local folks to try to put together a pilot project for his patients, I think would be, would have the most impact. 
And I think that's great advice. Why we need to get something that's proven, that's science-based, that's tested over time, that we know has results with high efficacy and get that into your community. Um, I want to say thank you so much to Justin Roberts for your question and for um, the treatment that you provide in a compassionate way in the emergency department to patients who have a substance use disorder, very difficult population, especially in the emergency department at the peak of, um, of their, their addiction issues that you are able to take that, that crisis moment and, and transform it and connect people to treatment that is so important and, and valued. And I thank you for that. And Dr. Richard Rawson, thank you so much for joining us on High Truths and for your continued research and advocacy on behalf of people with have a stimulant use disorder. Um, you really have a lot to, to teach us around the world uh, and in our country and in our homes on, on what works and what doesn't. And you continue to look for solutions. And I so appreciate um, you helping us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.